Hi there, Neil here. Obviously, you love to travel. That's why you're listening to this podcast. Circa, our app available right now from the App Store on iOS, is filled with podcasts and guides for travelers. But more than that, it has a feature that we're calling the Circa Concierge, where you can have any question about any place you're traveling answered by real people on the ground. We're giving you a friend to ask anywhere in the world. And hey, if you've got questions about Barcelona, you might even get me. Because I love to help people discover my city. And if you're the same way for the city where you live, then we want you to become part of the Circa Concierge too. Right now, we're searching for concierges in Barcelona, Rome, London, Paris, Madrid, Venice, and New York City. Don't see your city listed? That's okay. We'll be rolling out new cities throughout the year, and yours might just be next. If you love where you live and love to help travelers, sign up now to be a Circa Concierge. Help out our users and earn tips for the knowledge you have about your own city or country. Head over to circatravel.com forward slash concierge and sign up today. Let's face it, people have different sleep needs. While you love your partner, sleeping next to them might not always be the most comfortable. Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Maybe you prefer a firmer mattress and your partner needs something softer. Because of the individualized comfort that you get from Sleep Number Smart Beds, you and your partner will sleep better together. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep, throughout the night. And their temperature balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. The smart beds even automatically respond and adjust to your movements so you sleep comfortably all night long. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com excellent didgeridoo it's pretty good it's excellent bad you do the do the clicking sticks Really cool. <laughs> <laughs> a bunch of white people doing <laughs> 65,000 year old music <laughs> with their face. <laughs> That's okay, right? Yeah, it's fine. All right. Sweet. A destination isn't always a place. Sometimes it's a new way of seeing things. I'm Neil Innes. And I'm Andres Bartos. From Frequency Machine, this is Passport. Your ticket to everywhere. Australia, the world's smallest continental landmass and its largest island. This place is defined by extreme dichotomy. If you visited a different Australian beach every single day, it would take you 27 years to see them all. In Australia, the wonder inspired by its beauty is matched only by the fear of the things 
that can kill you. It's home to more kangaroos than people. 21 of the world's 25 deadliest snakes and a coral reef that is over a million years old. Because it is so isolated, the country's ecology is remarkable. And so are its indigenous people. Today on Passport, part one of our season finale, producers Jennifer Carr and Andres Bartas take us to Australia, my old home. But today, we're looking up for a story about survival, the stars, and ancient tales. This is a story about the original astronomers, Australia's first people, and how the knowledge written in the stars is being reclaimed by today's astronomers, artists, activists, and filmmakers to reveal an understanding of our world that we've never known before. This is exciting for me. And me. <laughs> me too. I feel like I'm being shown my own house. It's nice. And it's been, it's made me go back and learn just from you doing this episode, Jen. Like it's been crazy to go back and like read about all of these crazy stories and land rights issues and all yeah. this sort of stuff that I just had had no clue about yeah. at all. I spent a year traveling both coasts going to an Aboriginal reserve, you know, by this like shaky tin can of an airplane that I thought I was going to completely die in. But knowing what I know now, you know, in the context of how little I knew back then, but also getting that feeling of like division between white Australia and Aboriginal Indigenous Australia. Yeah. Yeah. It gives you a whole new understanding of the country and um, what's, yeah, what's still being fought. There's just such a defiant spirit in these people. It's like, it's that Victor Frankl thing of like, it's their personal choice to not let that like consume them, you know? And it's, the, there's a more important thing at play here and there's a, a deeper connection to the land. And I think they just, it's on such a different level of spirituality that we can't even understand. Mm-hmm. And I think that's almost like the preservation piece of yeah. how they keep going and like how that doesn't just destroy you yeah. psychologically. It feel it echoes to a lot of things that are happening now as well in different places. You know, when you unmask one part of the history, then you have to kind of accept a series of things. And it's it's that first step that's the hardest thing to do because the minute you do that, then you're kind of acknowledging the myth of the nation is a farce somehow. Yeah. And then you almost have to start over. Yeah, it's kind of a, a Pandora's box mm. that people don't want to open, yeah. but they denying the fact they are the box. Yeah. I think that's the thing, you know, with these indigenous, they just want to have that conversation. They just want to have that chance to have their seat at the table and preserve and, and honor their indigenous roots as well. Yeah. And it's like, why can't those things sit side by side? Yeah. I feel like there's something about Australia. It doesn't do anything in pastel colors. You know, it's, everything's intense. Yeah. yeah. The animals are going to kill you. The sun's going to kill you. You know, it's, like you really are, I really remember that red earth, mm. like baking and yeah. just this cobalt blue sky, you know, there's something that's so like unapologetic. You can see the horizon 360 degrees like around you and you feel like you're enormous and tiny at the same time. Mm. I don't know how to like. Yes, I know this feeling. You feel, you feel super lucky and 
just not important at all. <laughs> it feels singular and also it feels exactly. like a landscape where you can imagine giants roaming yeah. the, the earth. Totally. It's like a fist coming out of the sky and just like squishing yeah. you. It's like you got, yeah, you got to be tough there. It's, it seems like. I think still it's the only place in the world where you can take the C word on the chin and be totally cool. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. You know, just like, true. Like, hey, you want another beer? Yeah. <laughs> like, take it easy, mum. <laughs> Flanking the east coast of the Australian continent is the Great Barrier Reef, the largest living structure on Earth. I lived and worked here in my 20s, residing on a pretty ridiculous collection of coral islands nestling in the reef. The Whitsundays. Located off the tropical coast of Queensland, about halfway up Australia's east coast, these 74 islands were named after Captain James Cook, who sailed into this spot on the seventh Sunday after Easter. I remember gazing out over the reef one sunset, spying a shoal of mackerel being pursued by a band of tiger sharks. A school of dolphins were slicing through the waves right behind them. This was not an unusual spectacle for the island residents, but for me, I was left speechless. In this part of the world, nature finds you. I remember smacking my trainers against a wall each morning when I was staying on Australia's Gold Coast, to check if poisonous red-backed spiders hadn't laid eggs inside. On two occasions, they had. I remember lush rainforests on the northeast tip of Australia, the Daintree Rainforest, a place spun with silvery sacred geometry and home to thousands of spiders. I remember a deadly king-brown snake, thicker than my thigh, slivering into my unzipped tent while I was busy getting drunk around a campfire. I remember parched red earth and eternal bus journeys up the country's western shoulder, where strange limestone desert formations pierce a sky that seems, come nightfall, to be dripping with diamonds. The majesty and the terror of life on the ground or in Australia's immense tropical waters, it's reflected in the sky. A night sky like you'll see nowhere else on earth. The cosmos here is spectacular. For Australia's First Nation people, the animals, spirits, and a whole world of mythology inhabit the constellations. The celestial emu, the gray kangaroo, the thorny devil lizard, Bidem the shark. You might not be familiar with these intergalactic creatures. These animals don't exist in the Northern Hemisphere, but down under, the sky is packed with the symbols and creatures and astrological entities of the Southern Hemisphere. You just need to know where to look. Depending on the angle of the stars in the sky and how they twinkle, especially before dawn and at sunset, stars can be read to find water, navigate land, source food and understand changing weather patterns or even approaching storms. The Aborigines have been reading stars like a practical and cosmic language in order to coexist with some of the most deadly nature on Earth for tens of thousands of years. It's a big cosmic playbook up there. In the words of the Aboriginal elders, everything is written twice, 
once on the ground and once in the sky. There's a tremendous amount of astronomical knowledge amongst all the different Aboriginal communities across Australia, of which there are hundreds. We're talking hundreds of distinct languages, each with unique astronomical views. This is Dwayne Hamaker, Associate Professor of Cultural Astronomy at the University of Melbourne. When I began learning more about this, I you know, I thought, well, there's, there's actually a tremendous amount of, of science here, too. And this science seems to go back before Western science was developed. So there's a story here that needs to be told. He quickly became enchanted with a version of astronomy that wasn't getting any airtime on the ground. Duane leads a growing team of researchers all over Australia who are working to bring to light how astronomical knowledge is encoded in various Aboriginal cultures of Australia. I had been asking some people around campus and around Sydney, you know, what were some of the Aboriginal traditions about the stars? And the response I got was there wasn't really anything there. You know, they had a few names or stories about it. And, you know, they'd say, oh, there were some myths and legends, and that was about the extent of it. And I thought, okay, that seems strange. The lack of awareness about Australia's oldest inhabitants and their relationship to the sky got Duane a little curious. But just how do these stories marry up with our modern Western idea of astronomy? Culture is as critical and integral and central part of science as it is any other um, endeavor that involves humans. And indigenous people around the world have been working and lobbying and advocating for a very, very long time for this knowledge to be taken seriously, for it to be included, to have a voice at that table. Like so many fighting to reclaim this aspect of Australia's indigenous cultural past, well, it also got him pissed off, justifiably pissed off. What I've learned from the elders over the years is there's a tremendous depth of knowledge that links to the stars. When Duane refers to elders, he's talking about the older members of any Aboriginal community, each with their own distinct language and territory. There's a lot of science there, but there's also a lot of culture and spirituality and identity and things like that as well. Some of that of which really isn't my place to try to learn about or talk about. Um, But when it comes to the science component of that knowledge, there's a tremendous amount there. It is these elders who are the true gatekeepers of Australia's oldest indigenous wisdom. This wisdom is often referred to as the dreaming or dream time. Reading and interpreting the stars is closely linked to this ancient knowledge and a crucial way of understanding both culture, but also scientifically, what's going on immediately in the environment around us. The work that I've been doing is more on the science side of things, and that's the elders telling me that, you know, everything on the land is is mapped out in the sky. And what that means is a person's ability to read the stars is critically important The elders have been doing this since the beginning. According to the most recent archaeological evidence, Aboriginal peoples have been living on this land for at least 65,000 years. They are the world's oldest continuous living culture. By reading the stars, what I mean is a person's ability to observe and interpret the meaning behind the changing positions and properties of things in the sky. So when stars rise and set at dusk and dawn, we're used as seasonal indicators. And it might 
tell you something about maybe the wet season transitioning to the dry season. It might tell you about a particular animal's behavior. These signals from the cosmos point to something I come to learn is fundamental to the Aboriginal understanding of life. Nothing is random. Everything is connected. And everything has a consequence. Is the animal migrating? Is it breeding? Is it nesting? Is it brooding? What is it doing? It might tell you about the plants. Certain plants come into season. They flower, they fruit. And also how to look at the changes in the properties of the stars, their brightness or their color, their fuzziness or how they twinkle. All of these things have special significance because those sort of tell you about atmospheric conditions. An entire knowledge system for life mapped out in the sky. Duane and his team of astrophysicists, ethnologists and PhD students are all hell-bent on getting Aboriginal cultural astronomy into the mainstream narrative. They also want to prove, beyond a shadow of scientific doubt, that the Aboriginal traditions do accurately explain the relationship between events in the sky and corresponding events on Earth. Take the example of perhaps Australia's most emblematic bird, the emu. In this case, the celestial emu. Its silhouette is traced by the dark, dusty lanes of the Milky Way between the Southern Cross and the Scorpius Sagittarius. This constellation is found all across the continent in different dark sky locations. Depending on which community of elders you ask, though, there are many different interpretations of dreaming narratives attached to it. When the celestial emu in April-May first appeared, Aboriginals took this to mean that the emu breeding season had begun. Then, when the bird is seen lying horizontally in the sky in June, this is the time when terrestrial emus are nesting and laying eggs. This is the best time for Aboriginals to harvest emu eggs, but only what was needed. For Duane, it's clear there's as much going on in Australia's southern skies as there is down on the ground. When you bridge these two worlds, people see Aboriginal culture in a very different way. And they associate, you know, it's a way of associating the positives to that instead of everybody trying to focus on negatives. He is, of course, referring to the fact that the country, for centuries, has been divided. The Aborigines were the original stewards of the land, but white colonial settlers swiftly and violently redirected the course of history. It's only in recent times that the country's some 500 distinct Aboriginal communities or Aboriginal clans have begun to find their way back onto the radar of mainstream Australia. It's not before time. That, that empowers the communities, empowers the elders and the students coming up in this group where profiles have skyrocketed. You know, in just a couple of a couple of years, some of the, the Aboriginal people in our group, you know, they're, they're super bloody famous now. They're, they're on, you know, stargazing live and giving TEDx talks and they're on major movies and documentaries and stuff like that, you know, which is the way it should be. It makes me think about a lot of stuff that maybe we'll get into later as well. But there's there's this this thing that humans suck at and we're really bad at, which is how you take care of and how you preserve kind of intangible stuff. You know, the colonial story is a story that's gone on almost every continent in the Southern Hemisphere, right? But the places that have managed to somehow find a way to bring that to the front or deal with it in one way or the other. At least integrate it. Yeah, they had like tangible kind of monuments. The Aztec pyramids. Yeah. The Incan ruins of Machu Picchu. You can kind of point to something very specific. 
And when you're in Australia, it's a, it's a, it's something that you have to take some time to actually parse. Like, what is that, right? Yeah. A lot of our problems now come from that. You know, not having a, an intangible cultural preservation society. Yeah, yeah. or like, a sense like, of what that even means. You know, and like this feeling like we've got to get rid of philosophy in yeah, school. Yeah. Anything and, abstract is basically obsolete. Yeah, like yeah. it's a waste of time. Yeah. Because what we should be doing is like building chips. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know yeah. What I mean? And giant servers and deserts. Yeah. And yet, even in terms of like all of the things that we're facing right now in terms of pandemics and people storming uh, Capitol buildings yeah. and all of this stuff, it feels like it's all about this detachment, right? Of humanness. It's 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 almost doubly hard in Australia because it's it's all oral history, like there's not even that many paintings, really. Yeah, and you've I mean, got to seek them as well. Yeah. They'll be in caves or they'll be on, carved on rocks in yeah. the middle of nowhere. And, and so all of those, yeah. with the dying of all of those languages and the dying of all of those people, all of the stories and all of the all of their own traditions have, be, have gone within two generations. It's crazy. You know, even the ones that have luckily been preserved, they're so amazing. Can you imagine like an ancient Aboriginal joke? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It would be incredible. And yeah. then there must be so many of them. Mm-hmm. Because I, I found out today, right, that Canberra, the capital of Australia, is an Aboriginal word. And in many different Aboriginal languages, it means cleavage. It's the space between a woman's breasts. Oh. It's like... <laughs> it's décolletage. Décolletage. <laughs> Have you been to décolletage? Wow. It's lovely yeah. this time. That That's a great fact. We'll be back after this short break with an unexpected star killer and the woman trying to stop it, Aboriginal artist Lloyd Hornsby Plus. More animals, omens, and tales from the night sky. We'll see you in a bit. Hi, everyone. Circa's recruiting new concierges. A Circa concierge is a friend to ask anywhere in the world. Real people, on the ground, never bots. If you want to be a concierge for your city, Go to circatravel.com to sign up. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Beyond the deeply painful colonial cultural amnesia, the stories held in the stars now face a different kind of threat. Light pollution. There are people around the world who live in big cities like um, Beijing or New York or London, and it's really difficult to see one star, let alone, you know, the, the millions and billions of stars that we can see in the country in WA. Carol Redford is CEO and founder of Astronomy WA. Not only is she a campaigner for the importance of dark skies, she's also recruiting Aboriginal people to share their deep philosophical, spiritual and even ethical interpretations of the stars as it's passed down from their own ancestral elders and guides. Carol is an ambassador for the stars, 
and is working to recruit special star trail towns and their communities across Western Australia to join her in promoting and protecting the region's phenomenal night sky. For the past few years, she's been developing these trails in two regions in Western Australia. Perth, the major city on the west coast of the country, is the most isolated major city on Earth. The landscape beyond Perth is not only spectacular, it's spectacularly dark. We've mapped out now 50 places for people with telescopes or cameras for the beautiful astrophotography we see these days. And they can really sit underneath the Milky Way and experience a truly dark sky. I spent some time in Western Australia. It reminds me of Texas. There's the deliciously drawling accents, basically more red earth and desert than you could ever know what to do with and an immense pride from the many ranch owners, farmers and small communities who populate the thousands of miles of land that stretches in all directions from Perth, the West's capital city. The space between the east and west coasts of Australia is vast. From Perth, it would be quicker, cheaper and easier for you to jump on a flight to Bali in Indonesia than it would to fly to Sydney or Melbourne on the other side of Australia. Vast is an understatement. On balance, the west coast of Australia is also far less populated and tourist-centric than the east, which is famous for its dazzling Sydney Opera House, Bondi beaches, the surfer's paradise of the Gold Coast, and of course, the Great Barrier Reef. One of the reasons that the east coast holds about 81% of Australia's population is the country's colonial past. In 1770, during his first Pacific voyage, Lieutenant James Cook claimed possession of the east coast of Australia for the British Crown. Cook's reports inspired the authorities to establish a penal colony in the newly claimed territory. The new colony was meant to fix the problem of overcrowded British prisons and expand the British Empire. The impact on Australia's First Nation people was devastating. In the 10 years that followed, 90% of the indigenous were wiped out from a combination of plague, white settlers taking over their land, and violent conflicts. Carol's home turf, the west of Australia, sits directly beneath the Milky Way. From the dark sky regions that exist only a few hours north, south and east of Perth, you can also see the large and small megalanic clouds, which are known by astronomers as dwarf galaxies and span 14,000 and 7,000 light years across, respectively. According to First Nation people who live in this part of Australia, the clouds represent the camp of an old couple who can no longer obtain their own food, and a nearby star represents their fire. This story represents a celestial model of respect for elders and the need to share food with those who need it. It's also one of many moral tales found in the sky that reflects back the social, cultural, and religious value systems of Aboriginal society. These values still exist today and act as a very real moral compass to modern Aborigines who received these stories and fables from their ancestors. These stories would also be impossible to tell if the sky lost its darkness. 80% of Western Australians live in Perth and Perth, the Perth metropolitan area, 
only makes up 0.25% of the whole land mass of Western Australia. So it means we've got this vast area with small country towns with low populations and naturally low levels of light pollution. Uh, and that's what, um, if we can try and maintain that that low level, we'll have this beautiful dark sky for a very long time uh, to come. Um, in our isolation and our remoteness, there is great advantage. <laughs> There's a much bigger picture when it comes to protecting dark skies. When we reduce light pollution, we can protect wildlife and also our human health as well. Um, that light pollution affects birds migrating, turtles hatching. Uh, there's all sorts of insects that light pollution can affect, um, but also our own health, our own sleeping and waking cycle, our circadian rhythm. Um, light affects all of that. I hadn't considered that lights play a role in unseen tragedies, like insect populations declining because they're no longer able to use the stars for navigation. Not to mention ancient Aboriginal stories and myths quite literally being cancelled out by light. Two years ago, I went out and did some initial meetings um, with communities and I went to communities who were working together already on tourism initiatives in Western Australia. So uh, there are about seven or eight local governments there working on a fantastic initiative called the Wheatbelt Way. I backpacked my way through part of the Wheatbelt back in 2004. The towns that form the Wheatbelt span about 800 kilometres southeast of Perth. Placid lakes, ancient geological rock formations, thick blankets of wildflowers, and perhaps my favourite, wave rock in Hyden. Yeah, it looks like it sounds. A 110-metre-long stretch of granite curving in perfect formation right at that moment when you'd expect a regular wave to crash. Except that wave is 2.7 billion years old and perfectly frozen in time. This region of Western Australia is one of the global hotspots to find pitch darkness. I recall my 22-year-old self being by Lake Asku. Me and a few other backpackers lay down as the sun set and were quickly humbled into silence from the spectacle of the stars above. I remember feeling completely immersed and swallowed up by the sky, not really knowing where the stars ended and my own stretched out, starstruck body begun. travel with a, a dark sky quality meter, so I measure the, the quality of the night sky and how dark it is there. Carol and her team have selected 50 different places to create an official astro-tourism map. Each town or settlement all offering something unique and spellbinding to gaze at come nightfall. Does this map allow for some indigenous storytelling too? It's um, always been in, my, in the back of my mind to overlay with that an Aboriginal astronomy trail. When I think about the night sky from an Aboriginal perspective, it means seasons and seasonality. In the southwest of Western Australia, for instance, there are six Noongar Aboriginal seasons. And of course, I've grown up with only knowing four. Doesn't that indicate such a level or a depth of knowledge about the environment that we just don't have. 
Given the colonial backstory, it shouldn't surprise me that this knowledge isn't widely shared and celebrated, but it still blows me away that thousands of years of indigenous intelligence has basically been ignored. And let's not forget that a lot of First Nation wisdom and knowledge has been either withheld or shared in fragments or snippets by ancestors who weren't always informed. There's so much we'll never know. Well, most of us live in brightly lit cities. We've forgotten that those stars are up there. And, you know, we have lost that connection um, with the night sky. And, yeah, perhaps that's why it's become such a hidden thing. And it's just there. It's right there under the surface. And all we have to do is turn out the lights. <laughs> we'll find it again. There's like an image I have of almost pitch dark, just starlight, and you see this car like coming mm-hmm. from the distance, like like Lawrence of Arabia coming out of the desert, just in the middle of nowhere. It stops. This woman gets out, and she gets a little, little machine out of her pocket, and she goes, yeah, it's pretty dark here. <laughs> Puts a little note in her notebook and then drives another thousand kilometers. So yep. awesome. Just yep. like test, just like. It's like night police. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this yeah. is pretty dark. This is cool. This is good dark. The Dark Sky Reserves and the Dark Sky Alliance is something that's definitely like, I mean, she she's basically lobbying and campaigning for policy change at a level of government and mm. working with the, the Australian and the International Dark Sky Alliance to make sure that the sky has the same level of reverence and protection as, say, a UNESCO site. Where my folks live, which is it's like an hour and a half between an hour and a half and six <laughs> it's hours. It's like one or three or six. <laughs> when you go walk about, it's 12. <laughs> so, sometimes it's hard to know. Like the stars in my parents' house, it's just like, it's incredible. So there's, there's people that like have grown up and have never had that experience at all. That anecdote. The when, LA thing. Yeah. Yeah. It was an earthquake. It was an earthquake in LA. All the lights went out and then people started calling 911 because they were like, there's there's a giant fire in the sky. It's like a noxious cloud. There's a noxious cloud in the sky. <laughs> Make it stop. And it was like, no, that is, that's, that's the galaxy. That's where yeah. we live. Yeah. Jeez. When we talk about reclaiming history, reclaiming a story... There's a really compelling question that comes up. Who has the right to do it? I'm not sure I know the answer, but we came across someone who's trying to do it. Ewan country Wallaga Lake is situated on the border of New South Wales and Victoria and tucked into the bottom southeast corner of Australia. The Ewan are a group of indigenous Aborigines considered to be the original stewards of the lake. The lake, incidentally, is the largest in the region and features a small island in the middle. Merriman's Island. Aboriginal artifacts from thousands of years back have been found here, and in November 1977, it was the first place in New South Wales to be declared an Aboriginal heritage site by the New South Wales National Parks and Wildlife Service. Lloyd Hornsby is an artist and a quarry from here. His spiritual name is Gawura, which means whale. After aging members of his family revealed his connection to the Yuin Nation, he started to dig into his family tree. He discovered not only an Australian lineage, but Chinese as well. And it was not until Lloyd turned 55 that he went back to university to study Aboriginal art and culture. 
Lloyd has been a professional artist ever since. In recent years, his celestial artwork blew up on the internet. In 2020, it caught the attention of one of the world's most iconic museums, the Louvre, in Paris. The artwork that comes out of the central desert is beautiful. It is unreal. It's, it's basically patterns telling, a, they, some of them tell stories, telling stories of their past, but um, a lot of them are just basically patterns and you'll never see art like it anywhere else in the world. Lloyd's art is beautiful. He uses a traditional dot technique seen in other Australian indigenous art with recurring symbols and patterns woven through intricate constellations. Often you'll see celestial animals leaping across the canvas or silhouettes of men or creatures going walkabout along Aboriginal song lines. Lloyd's journey into art isn't your typical story of a lifelong struggling painter. It was upon him discovering his true lineage that he got the urge to put himself through art school at 55 years old, motivated by a burning desire to understand where he came from. My daughter told me, my auntie had told my daughter, and my daughter, she'd gone on the internet and looked it up and found out the truth. We are actually part of a family tree that's on the internet, and uh, we didn't know about it, none of us knew about it. But uh, what happened is, um, is that she said, how do I feel? And I said, it all makes sense now. Imagine your whole life not really knowing why you felt disconnected to your family history, then having this deep, gnawing ache confirmed by your own family. Lloyd's way back was by reconnecting to his ancestors through quite literally painting the stars. Despite him living in a tiny rural town in Ewan country called Glen Innes, it didn't take long for art enthusiasts, professional collectors and global media to zone in on his story. We did a, an interview with a, a journalist from the ABC here and he took images of mine and he put it on uh, his website and within about half an hour to an hour, we had 610,000 hits. I'm not too sure how why they approached me, but I've sold work in Germany. I've sold work in France, some work in Britain, uh, and uh, maybe somebody has brought it to their attention or they've seen my work on the internet. Uh, they've approached me. At first, we thought it was a scam, and then we found out through the Australian government it wasn't. A 73-year-old guy getting a phone call that one of the most famous museums on the planet wants to hang his art. Talk about karma. What Lloyd is excited about, though, is art. As a conduit for education, as a conversation starter, as a means of storytelling and connecting Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians after they've been divided for so long. One of the biggest things where the, the movement between tribal areas that's been the greatest movement in Australia, is that the Aboriginal, Australian Aboriginal recognise the Torres Strait Aboriginal. Um, the, uh, the Torres Strait Islander are totally different to look at. They're a different build, they're a different size, different structure. Uh, and what's good is that even where I am, we fly the Torres Strait flag along with the Aboriginal flag. And we've had visitors that have turned up here from Torres Strait and get quite emotional that I'm flying their flag. And that's the way it should be. I'm glad Lloyd brings this up. The Torres Strait Islanders, like Australia's Aboriginal Indigenous, 
are an indigenous group that are deeply connected to star astronomy, but they are ethnically distinct. Torres Strait Islanders are the indigenous people of the Torres Strait Islands. The Torres Strait is an oceanic passage between the Coral Sea on the east and the Arafura Sea in the western Pacific Ocean. Duane works with Torres Strait Islander Martin Noah, who works at the James Cook University in Queensland. He invited Duane up to Murray Island in the Torres Strait as part of a work project. Duane's stargazing story from this trip was too good not to share. We thought, you know, doing a project in the Torres Strait on astronomy would be fantastic because even what little had been done in Australia on Indigenous astronomy, almost none of it came from the Torres Strait. So we were headed up there, and, and he grew up on Thursday Island. Thursday Island is one of 274 tiny tropical islands that stretch some 48,000 square miles of shark-infested waters from the tip of northern Queensland up to Papua New Guinea. It is only 1.4 square miles wide, and islanders either speak Torres Strait Creole or the indigenous language Korareg. Pearling and sea cucumber fishing are big industries here. Sitting outside, it's a beautiful night, we were having a whiskey, and I looked up and I was like, oh, wait, I, I recognize those stars. Isn't that Bazon the shark? And it's the stars of the Big Dipper. Uh, when Bazon, the nose of Bazon is touching the horizon at sunset, that means that the shark breeding season has begun and you need to be very careful about getting in the water because the sharks come very close to the shore and they're hunting for these sardines that sort of tend to cluster real close to the shoreline like a, like a rope all the way around the beach. And uh, when I said that, Professor Nakata sort of looked at me and he sort of smiled and he says, wait till tomorrow. And then we got to the beach and, and my eyes just sort of bugged out. I was looking and there's all these, you know, giant sharks in the water, like literally in like less than knee deep water, just going back and forth. You could see the dorsal fins popping. I could see the whole shark on the water. It's this beautiful, clear water up there. It's going back and forth, tearing through these um, schools of sardines on the shoreline. And I kind of looked at him. He just looked at me and sort of nodded and smiled. It's like, you know, this was an opportunity for me to see it firsthand because that was right at the season that the sharks were breeding. And I said, well, wait a minute. When we were flying in, I, I thought I saw some kids swimming in the water. I mean, surely you don't swim in the water when the sharks are like this. He's like, oh, yeah, they're fine. I'm like, well, how? He's like, well, we train the sharks to only bite white fellows. Warnings, omens, prophecy, real life, written in the stars and then experienced on the ground. Of the many communities that Duane works alongside, some of this knowledge is simply a deep, inherent knowing of how to coexist with nature. It's not something they've been officially taught, per se. The knowledge acquired out of dreaming is dynamic, ever-present, and exists on a level of consciousness most of us Westerners just can't fully grasp. There's a tremendous wealth that we can learn from Aboriginal people, um, and that can guide our scientific, it does, guide our scientific practices and doesn't matter if you're looking at geology, ecology, astrophysics, whatever. Every area, even mathematics and chemistry, like this stuff is informed and guided by traditional knowledge um, because these people figured this stuff out a long time ago.
I want to know if I can read the sky to know when to not get eaten by sharks. <laughs> <laughs> They've got all these signature animals in Oz, haven't they? The yeah. koalas and the kangaroos and the wallabies and the, the platypus, of course. Eds and and stuff, giant right? hallucinogenic ants. I licked a la- an ant's me? bum once. <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa. Did you just say you licked it? A- I licked an ant's ass, uh-huh. and it was um, on the like premise. Like on purpose? Of the go- somebody, yeah, totally Somebody on was purpose. like, lick this ant's ass. I picked it up, and I was like, as big as a finger, definitely. I'm going to have to go lick some ants. Hallucinogenic ass ants. <laughs> Officially. Ass <laughs> um, okay, but so this is this is the end of part one. The end of part one. So there's more coming, Neil. So this episode has been all about the stars and a disconnection or a connection to the stars. Yes. The next episode is going to be all about the kangaroo's vagina. (laughs) (laughs) No, but it does. Did you just lick ants' assets? (laughs) I am Yeah, all right, that's not sexual, is it? Well, maybe, yeah. I mean, maybe for the answer. It wasn't sexual at the, the end, time yeah. for me. The answer, the sure. answer are all talking. <laughs> the answer like, <laughs> The answer remember you. <laughs> 20 generations later, they're still that, discussing. That, that British chick <laughs> came into the rainforest. Built like a whole religion around you. <laughs> it's like a Rick and Morty episode. <laughs> Just a big <laughs> <hill> of Jen. <laughs> We'll be back in Australia next week for part two and our season finale. Looking up once more, but this time with a little caution. A story about omens, asteroids, and impact craters. Oh, and there will be a very special guest. Yes, I can accept that. And and there is something which uh, is their truth. And I marvel at it and I accept it and I feel enriched. That's right, the unmistakable voice of Werner Herzog. Plus, many more incredible people of and in Australia. Plus, our five saved pins for some night sky action. Keep an eye out for us on social media at Passport Pod, at Passport Podcast on Instagram, and at FrequencyMachine.com forward slash Passport for all show notes and info. Today's episode of Passport was written and produced by Jennifer Carr and edited by me and Andres. Huge thanks to Dwayne Hamaker, Carol Redford, Lloyd Hornsby, Marnie Ogg, Jesse Ferrari, Trevor Lehman, Madeline Anderson, Werner Herzog, Clive Oppenheimer and Isaac Davidson for all of their kind help and words in making these episodes. For information on these amazing people, check in the show notes. Our theme music is by the incredible Nick Turner, additional music by the Indigenous Peoples of Australia and JinglePunks.com. The show is mixed and mastered by Julian Kwasniewski. Our production assistant is Eliza Engel. Stacey Book, Dominic Ferrari, and Avi Glijanski are our celestial emus. They also executive produce the show, which is hosted by me and a man who has never been down under but has somehow been on walkabout for nearly 40 years, Andres Bartos. We'll see you in the same place next week.